sitting, I was sitting here this morning um, during the meditation, and of course, probably floating through my mind was a combination of uh, some thoughts about wonder what I should talk about tonight. <clears throat> In what other way do I know to talk about the urgency of this conversion of the heart that we have been working so hard on practicing all week? And uh, maybe because my sense of uh, tomorrow as the day that we're all going to go home, because I started suddenly to hear in my mind the song that I I, I don't remember whether this is Perry Como or... uh, there's no tomorrow when love is new. Now is forever when love is true. Then I started to think about it, and I realized that that's the whole Dharma talk. There is no... No, no, I'm gonna, now I have an hour's worth of things to say, but, but actually they amount to that because there is no tomorrow. And when love is true, now is forever. This is the only moment ever in which we can be alive. My sister-in-law, Karen, uh, lives in um, uh, uh, Durham. She's recently moved to Durham, uh, North Carolina, from Florida. And uh, she was telling me about how she's now situated in this new city and happy to be there. And uh, she's a stockbroker, but what she said, she said, as I wanted to get involved in some community activity that was good for the community. First of all, I wanted to do it because I'm able to, and I wanted to really establish myself in this community and help out. I wanted people to know me. I wanted to know it. She said, so I chose the Heart Association, and I'm having a great experience with them. And in fact, she's the organizer of the whole big fundraising gala that's happening in February. And she said, and I've learned so much about it, and she said, I'm so enthusiastic about the work they do. She said, do you have any idea how many people have heart failure every day? And I thought about it. (laughs) And I thought to myself, something like, do you have any idea of how many times I'm going to use that line? (laughs) Because it's a great thought. What we are doing here is we are preventing heart failure. We really are preventing heart failure. All the ways in which the heart suddenly fails us because we've been startled, because we've been frightened, because we are exhausted, because we are confused, because a lust has come up, because boredom has come up, because doubt has come up, because anything has come up to disturb us. And then we have heart failure. Really think that what we are doing here is practicing repairing heart failure all the time. The organizing question that I have for my own practice these days, I think about a lot, every day, from time to time. And there will always be something that causes me to think about it. I don't think about it randomly. The question is, is my heart available at this point? Right now, is my heart available? Have I had a heart failure? Or is it alive? Is it available? Can it befriend? Can it console? Can it appreciate? Both for myself as well as for someone else, those are the three movements of the heart that we've practiced this week. Befriending and consoling and appreciating. Can it do it? Any of those movements. Can it move in those ways towards someone else? Can it move in those ways towards me?
Am I alive in this moment? It's also been coming to me a line from the Song of Songs all, uh, as I've been thinking about it during the day. The line is, I was asleep, but my heart was awake. And lo, my beloved is knocking. I was asleep, but my heart was awake. I think that the emphasis in that particular line is on the I. When I am asleep, all the ego-driven imperatives that keep me preoccupied and self-absorbed, when that I goes to sleep, then my heart wakes up. And then what is most beloved, the capacity to love, emerges in me just because it's there. It arrives on the scene when I am asleep. Really, that's actually how I I understand this practice most, that it's a practice of addressing the ego-preoccupying needs and challenges that constantly arise so that the sense of an eye compelling the attention is gone. Remember the other night I said that line from Rumi that I've been enjoying so much, God can't come to visit you unless you aren't here. That's really what we're doing here. Everything that, that we do here in this week conspires for the I to go to sleep, that ego-driven, self-preoccupied I. It's a pleasant place. It's quiet. Your room is lovely. The place is lovely. The food is lovely. We try very hard not to have any disturbances happen here. And then you try in your practice, along with that, to bring your attention once again to a soothing phrase, soothing to yourself or soothing to somebody else. We really habituate the heart to console and to soothe. And the structure of this place, the regularity of everything happening, now a bell do this, now a bell do that, now a bell do this, and you cooperating in that regularity. Sometimes I say to people, talking about what stirs the heart, so one of the things that stirs my heart so much is the sound of the bell at Spirit Rock, and I describe it to them. Doesn't it stir your heart? Whether I'm out or not out, or sitting in that teacher's room, or wherever I am, I hear that bell, and in my mind's eye, from all over, I see people converging quietly in an orderly way to come back here and sit down once again to convert their hearts to love. And it's the most powerful sense that I have. Look what we all want to do. It so uplifts me in terms of hope for the world. We are all so diligent. You are so inspiring. So I found myself thinking this morning about the question. Sometimes when we're talking about a person in their life and we say, how long did so-and-so live? I've been having an appreciation of what it means to live long. My mother died. She was uh, in her late 40s, really a young woman. And I remember thinking at the time that I was consoled by the fact that I thought that she'd been alive all of her life, that um, in spite of challenges to her health, she'd been alive all of her life. made me feel good to think that. 
So I've been thinking all day about time and about love. And uh, someone sent me a, uh, a poem that apparently was on the bulletin board at IMS last fall, written by the poet Dina Metzger. This is the poem. There are those who set, set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is no time not to go slowly. There is no time not to love. I'm not sure. I, I, I thought as I read the poem that maybe it was particularly in response to the world situation now or last fall. I think it's a fine poem, and I think it's a fine poem without the first line, just as well. Without the first line, it reads like this. We are in danger. There is no time not to go slowly. There is no time not to love. Let's think for a minute about the, little, the, the middle line. There is no time not to go slowly. I think if we read that in the, taking out the inverse, it says go slowly all the time. Go slowly now. And I think the slowly that it's meaning is not slow in terms of pace necessarily. I'd like to think of it in terms of carefully, in terms of don't disturb your, don't disturb the sleeping mind so that your heart can stay awake. Don't frighten it, don't overburden it. Act in the world, but act carefully. Think before you do things. Guard the sense doors. Carefully, be careful about what comes in and out of you. There is no time to be reckless. Maybe the whole line could read, be mindful. There is no time not to go slowly. Then let's think a little bit about the last line, there is no time not to love. Really, there's no time not to love. We haven't got a moment to spare. One of the, there, there, I, I like words very well, and I think about them. And there are certain expressions that just uh, distress me so much. When someone will say, uh, "I missed my plane and connection in Chicago, so I had to kill three hours in the Chicago airport," I'm just so distressed when I hear that. I think to myself, there isn't a moment to lose. No time to kill. There's every single moment we have the possibility of heart open, heart closed. I think sometimes maybe my dharma is getting way too simple. Either your heart is open or it's not. Open, closed, open, closed. Like a computer, either one or zero, one or zero. And you get a choice in any moment. And I don't get to, I don't get to do tomorrow's moments now, and I don't get to do ten minutes ago moments now. Now is the only chance I get to do now. I was thinking about the line from the Dhammapada, anyone who understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. I think what that means is when we understand that we actually don't know the end of our time or the, how much time we have, then there really isn't a moment to spare. 
not to convert the heart to kindness. The Buddha said we ought to be practicing as if our hair is on fire. And it's a pretty dramatic metaphor. But I think it's true. If what I want in this life is really the complete conversion of my heart to kindness through the complete opening of my mind or heart or mind-heart to wisdom, there isn't a moment to lose. I don't know how many moments I'm going to have. I remember that when I was in college in New York City, uh, for two of the four years I needed to commute on the train. It was an hour at least, commute an hour and a half. I got in the habit of buying the morning Herald Tribune and reading it all the way in the subway and going to school. And I got in the habit, for some reason, of reading obituaries. I think they had good obituary writers. Here, I, I was, you know, I was quite young when I started college, but I was reading obituaries. And uh, I was thinking about how long or not long people lived. And I decided that 70 was the, was the right age, or was a good age, so that if people die, I, I think it says somewhere three score and ten is what we're allotted. So I, when I saw somebody got to be 77, I thought, oh, okay, old. They, you know, they made it past where they should have gotten to. And then if somebody was less than that, I thought, oh, alas, not. And if somebody was really less than that, I thought about that. This one was young, I think. But, you know, the thing is, you never know. Three score and ten, what's going to be yours? In a room this size, I always look around and I think, there are 90 people in this room. The chances are that someone has had a partner who died, a child who died, a parent who died when they were too young, a sister or a brother who died. That it's not something that happens to other people being surprised by the arrival of the end of a life early. There's a poem in this week's New Yorker. It's translated from the Polish, so when I read you a name, the names are odd because they're Polish names. It's called Return Baggage. The cemetery plot for tiny graves, we, the long-lived, pass by furtively, like wealthy people passing slums. Here lie little Zosia, Janek, Dominik, prematurely stripped of the sun, the moon, the clouds, the turning seasons. They didn't stash much in their return bags, some scraps of sights that scarcely count as plural, a fistful of air with a butterfly flitting, a spoonful of bitter knowledge, the taste of medicine. Small-scale naughtiness granted some of it fatal, gaily chasing the ball across the road, the happiness of skating on thin ice. This one here, that one down there, those on the end. Before they grew to reach a doorknob, break a watch, or smash their first window pane. Malgorzata, four years old, two of them spent staring at the ceiling. Rafalek missed his first birthday by a month. And Zuzia missed Christmas when misty breath turns to frost. And what can you say about one day of life, a minute, a second? Darkness, a light bulb's flash, then dark again. The truth is we don't ever know how much time we have for anything. When I was in graduate school, um, 
I remember my teacher telling what she called the Kierkegaard joke. And that already is a joke. Uh, because uh, talking about existential psychologists, presumably Kierkegaard, who was not known for joviality, but anyway, uh, someone said to him in parting, I'll see you next week, and, uh, or I'll see you next Tuesday, and he is said to have said, I'll see you next Tuesday if, as I leave your house now, a tile does not fall off the roof and hit me on the head. And as I cross the street, a carriage does not run away with itself and run me over. And if during the week I do not catch some dread disease. Because the truth is you don't know. When we say to people, I'll see you later, you don't know. It's an actuarial guess all the time. There have been times in my life when that's frightened me very much. When I was a young woman... um, Every time I left my mother, I didn't know if I'd see her again. And I'd say goodbye, I'll see you in two weeks or four weeks or whenever. And I didn't know. I just read, actually this week, this book called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Have you read it? How many people have read it? It's by Jean-Dominique Balbi. He was the um, editor and publisher of the French magazine Elle. He suffered a stroke that resulted in locked-in syndrome when he was 43 years old. And he died just two days after the French publication of this book. He had locked-in syndrome, which is a great day. Sometimes people have a stroke or they have encephalitis, and they have um, a dreadful um, injury to their spinal cord, nervous system, and they really seriously cannot move they can't swallow, they can't do anything, except they can hear and think, or at least he could, hear and think. He could not move one single part of his body. He was fed through a feeding tube, but he could move his left eye. He could move his left eyelid. And he and his friends and associates figured out a way of using his left eyelid and blinking it to dictate this book. And he dictated the book. And it's a book of his memories of different parts of his life, about 20 or 25 essays. Some of them are essays about picnics that he went on on a summer day with a friend or his two children, what they ate, what it smelled like, the wine that they drank. At the end of the book, there's a piece called The Day in a Life. And he said, this is after a whole book of not, uh, of happy memories, sensual memories, the recipes for things that he liked, the best dinner party menu he'd ever eaten. Then he talks about that disastrous Friday, December 8th, 1955, and the, the last day, that, uh, the day in which he had a stroke. He says, how can I re- begin to recall those long, futile hours as elusive as drops of mercury from a broken thermometer? How can I describe waking for the last time, heedless, perhaps a little grumpy, beside the lithe, warm body of a tall, dark-haired woman? Everything that day was gray, muted, resigned, 
the sky, the people, the city, collective nerves on edge after several days of a transport strike. Like millions of Parisians, our eyes empty and our complexions dull. Florence and I embarked like zombies on a new day of punishment amid the indescribable chaos caused by the strike. I mechanically carried out all those simple acts that today seem miraculous to me, shaving, dressing, downing a hot chocolate. Talks about looking out the window, seeing someone picking him up in a car. I pressed my forehead against the window pane to gauge the temperature outside. Florence softly stroked the nape of my neck. Our farewells were brief, our lips scarcely brushing together. I am already running downstairs that smell of floor polish. It will be the last of the smells of my past. Talked about the rest of the day, going to work, having a crisis at Elle magazine where one of their major contributors has been offended by what she thought was a bad picture of her in the magazine and how he needs to be on the phone and mollify her and how that seemed so important, like that was really a critical thing, major thing that her feelings were ruffled. And then there's a corporate business lunch, and he remembers what they ate. He remembers that the last thing that he drank and was able to swallow was a drink of water and have water tasted. Think about the fact that Sometimes I think about, what if this were the last day of my life? I don't think about it much because I don't think it is. I think we none of us think it is. I guess it would be too daunting to think that it was, but it might be. I have the great good fortune of a, a very long relationship, which has not been turmoiled, and my person and I are great old friends, and Nevertheless, every once in a while, things happen. We get on each other's nerves. I think that happens to everybody in long relationships and in short relationships, all kinds of relationships. I think relationships are just really hard to sustain. They're training programs for the heart. Something will happen. He'll offend me with something that he says or doesn't say. And I'll hear my, my, my mind st- just for that. <laughs> Just for that, I'm not going to call all day. And then he'll notice. And what's more, maybe I won't call tonight either. And as long as I'm here on retreat, how will he, you know, I won't call. Then he'll know that he offended me. What's worse is that usually if I do that, which I'm happy to tell you I don't mostly do, he doesn't know that he's offended me, just figures I didn't call. Doesn't even work. Or just for that, I thought I'd fix this thing for dinner that he really likes. I won't do it. But, you know, what I'm really getting better at is I'm aware of how painful a thought is that begins just for that. Revenge is not sweet. Revenge is painful. The Buddha said when we've been hurt by somebody and then we continue to hatch revenge or to think about how grieved we are, It's like being stabbed by a dagger, taking the dagger out and then stabbing yourself again, causing yourself more hurt because the revenge fantasy is the second dagger. And then the more revenge is a more dagger. 
Most of the time I don't do that sort of stuff. I catch myself thinking, and I think you want to do this? No, you really don't want to do it. Forget about it. Do something else. And mostly I'm pretty good at that. But if I'm offended enough, it's hard to, let the, to take the mind off that point. It wants to talk about it. And it keeps coming back with a new way. You say, no, don't go there, Sylvia. It's not good. The road to indignation, forget about it, don't do it. And then it comes back another way. How could he, after all these years, and start another story from that way, and then another story from that way. And I've told him a thousand times that I really don't like it when you say that. It hurts my feelings so badly. This is a sure sign that he really doesn't love me, because if he did, he would have learned after so much time. The mind just keeps on doing that. It just does. It's like a dog gnawing on a bone. You know, it gets stuck on it. And this is a, one of the things I do, it's a fairly dramatic, and I don't have to do it very much. But I say to myself, if I want to stop it, because it's so unpleasant, it's really unpleasant, I say to myself, what if he doesn't come home today? And then it stops, just like that. I hope that's not macabre to you. Because it's, it's really a thing that I think about sometimes, if the day is going in a way that I can't get my mind or my heart into a good shape, I say to myself, what, is this, what if this is my last day? Do I want to end it this way? What can I do to fix it up? What if this is the last day of my life? I don't want to give up a day of my life to indulge myself in a hurtful state. It's not worth it. I'd rather have hot chocolate or listen to Mozart or the meta chant on my CD. I'd rather do something else. I benefit the most every time I fix up my heart. I'm really still moved by the uh, accounts of the... Uh, telephone messages that people on the doomed flights on 9-11 left for other people. I mean, everybody's message was the same. I love you, take care of yourself, take care of the children. Nobody left a message that said, you never met my deepest needs. And anything. <laughs> I mean, there, when, when the mind is clear, the heart knows what it wants to say. When the mind is clear, the heart only says one thing. It says, I love you. It says, I care about you. It says, I appreciate you. It says, I am moved by your situation. It's really got a one-track mind. It's the song of the heart, is I love you. You know, sometimes when we're here all week and we're doing all these wishes for other people, I think it's sometimes a little bit confusing the possibility of thinking that it's on behalf of these other people that we are making all these resolves. Actually, the principal beneficiary, I am sure, of my own benevolent heart is myself. I like to think when my heart is in a good shape and I make wishes, as you have been. I like to hope, I like to think, and I believe that I benefit all beings by that. I benefit them at least by not adding another drop of violence or hurt into an already suffering world. I like to think that at least I do that and maybe more. But I know for sure that I am benefiting from, the, from keeping the refuge of my own good heart alive. 
Tomorrow at the end, we dedicate the merit of our practice for the benefit of all beings. But it's really just going to be making a statement about what we already did. We can't have been saving it up and then at the last minute say, okay, now I'm making a dedication of the merit here. You can have it. The whole while, it is on behalf of all beings. It's just a nice formal way to say it. I love to say it. Let's go back to Dina Metzger's poem because I really want to say something about the first line, we are in danger. I don't know, I think, I don't know what Dina meant. Maybe it was in response to the world news last fall, but I actually like to think that we are always in danger. I am always in danger. And the danger that I feel is the danger that Guy talked about last night, described that the person in prison in the worst kinds of tortured in prison situation, said that he had felt himself to be in. I am in danger of having ill will arise. The first line of the metta chant is for me the most poignant, the most pungent, the most potent, the most wonderful. May I be free of enmity and danger. When I first heard the chant, I think that I understood it wrong. I think I thought it meant, may there be no enemies out there looking for me, who might come after me, who might cause harm to me. I think I thought maybe it was danger from an outside source. I'm sure what it means to me now is, may I be free of enmity in my heart. May ill will not arise in me to rob me from my good heart really to ruin the refuge of my own benevolent heart. And the truth is that ill will arises in me all the time. Every time I am jeopardized, every time I feel frightened in some sort of way, much smaller frights than being in prison or being tortured. But when I feel jeopardized, either physically jeopardized, in some way. What's the matter with this taxi driver? Why is he driving so fast? Or maybe emotionally jeopardized. Somebody talks something not nice about me or makes some statement about me. How could they have said that about me? Or actually if my property is jeopardized. You know, recently, I uh, this, was, this, was, this would have been in September. In, I know because... It was September, and I was sitting at my computer, and I was actually writing, uh, writing a piece about a benevolent heart, and writing sentences like, there is no more secure refuge in all the world than a fully benevolent heart, nothing more consoling than one's own benevolent heart. And at the same time, I was thinking murderous thoughts about the woodpeckers that were pecking the side of my house. There was, in September and October, red-headed acorn woodpeckers all over Sonoma County, all over Northern California, need to make holes in trees. They could make the holes. (laughs) (laughs) They need to make holes in something and put acorns in it. And the particular kind of acorns, they're called acorn woodpeckers, particular kind of acorns, they have larval worms in them. And they put those acorns in the holes and then they leave them there and they come back in the spring when their baby chicks have birds 
have hatched and they get those acorns and the worms are then ready to feed to those babies. It's a miraculous piece of nature. There are a lot of trees in Sonoma <laughs> and, and, they, and they are pecking holes. Seriously, they pecked hundreds of holes in the side of my house. Um, they're supposed to peck on the south side of the house because the sun is there in the winter and that's the warmest side. So some years ago, at some considerable expense, we had netting hung all over the south side of the house. And this year, they pecked all over the house. <laughs> and here I am sitting, and I'm writing at my computer, and they are pecking. I can hear them there. I can see them right out my window, and I can hear them rat-tat-tat, rat-tat-tat. It's like machine guns all over my house. And I called the bird store in Santa Rosa, and I said, what should I do with these woodpeckers? They're all over the house. And they said, I don't know. They're supposed to just stay on the south side. So I called the man who had built my house 20 years ago, and I said, what are we going to do about these woodpeckers? And he said, well, not much you can do. He said, I'll come out at the end of the week, and I'll bring this kind of um, putty stuff, glue, and I'll fill all the holes all over your house. Okay, I hang up. Just then, big woodpecker swoops down right in front of me, onto the house, not six feet from where I'm sitting, where there's a big hole that he's been working on. And I, I look at him and I think, aha, I have, you, just wait. I have, you, I have foiled your plot now. And then I see that he or she is not pecking. She has brought, or he has brought, an acorn, which she or he is about to put into the house. But I see we've got an acorn in the beak, and it's having a little trouble angling the acorn so it'll get right in the hole. They've made a big hole, but you have to put the acorn in in exactly the right way. And I can see the bird is just maneuvering to get that acorn around into the right place so it'll fall into the house. And I can feel myself thinking, don't drop it. <laughs> and then it puts the acorn in the house. And then I think Tom is coming on Friday to plug up all these holes. And then I think maybe I have to move. <laughs> so I tell you that whole story. I would tell you that whole story because truly the important point about it was that I felt very much better when I actually saw my own good heart reemerge itself. In the moment that I heard myself think, don't drop it, I thought, oh, that felt much better than the murderous thoughts. It really did. That's the point of that story. We plug the holes. I hope they don't come back. They skip sometimes a few years. Every time I tell the story, people send me notes and letters about potent cures for woodpeckers and so on. <laughs> If you know the final cure, please let me know without harming the woodpeckers, of course. But really, when you think about it, it's a funny story, but it's a startling thing. You know, you think about it, it's my house, they're taking it apart, I need to protect the house. What should I do? It's a dilemma. Everything that's a dilemma that challenges in one way or another, all of a sudden the mind says, uh-oh, what am I going to do now? And while it's thinking, what am I going to do now? It is not a conduit 
for loving feelings. It's not a conduit for metta. Actually, I recently found a book by Robert Fulgham, the man who wrote um, uh, Everything I Needed to Learn, I Learned in the Kindergarten. And the book is called Uh-Oh. Meaning, you know, that's what happens to us. Anything happens, uh-oh. We have that sort of a nervous system. The fact that we startle is part of us. It's not a wrong thing. I actually think it's not about not startling. It's about startling and recovering. It's about having heart failure and restoring the heart. I heard the, the Dalai Lama at, um, at a conference. This is, I know it was 18, 1989 because it was the very week that he got the Nobel Prize. And it was in Irvine, and I was there at a conference. And he was talking to a huge auditorium of people, 6,000 people. And he's taking questions and answers from the floor from 6,000 people. It was great. Sat in an armchair, and people, one after another, came up and came to a microphone, asked him a question, and he's sitting there like it's a living room and answering the questions. And someone came up to the microphone and said, uh, do you ever get angry? And uh, he said, uh, of course. And then he laughs. He has this little laugh. His, his whole, it's a great laugh. This, ha! So he said, uh, <laughs> so, of course, ha! Said, Things happen. They're not what you wanted. Anger arises. And he waits. He said, but it's not a problem. (laughs) (laughs) So the thing for us to think about is why isn't it a problem? Why is it not a problem with him? And it becomes a problem with other people. Of course, things aren't going the right way. Woodpeckers are making holes in my house. He's the head of state. People are not doing the jobs that they're supposed to be doing. I'm quite sure when he says it's not a problem, it's not that he doesn't address the situation. I'm sure he addresses it. I'm sure he gets it fixed. I'm sure that he doesn't take it personally, that it just is what happens, and now you get it fixed. It doesn't have to be a story about it. And I think a lot about the fact that the Dalai Lama has his wisdom, but he also has a practice. It's a practice that he's doing all the time. And I think his practice, even though it probably has different forms as a Tibetan, it's essentially the practice of restoring a good heart. That's what we're doing. It's recovery practice. When people say to me, they sometimes do, the the word practice interests me because people say, what's your practice? How long have you been practicing? I don't get enough time to practice. What do we mean when we say practice? Uh, people, For a long time, people, was when they said to me, um, what's your practice? I was, was saying, I'm, I've been in the habit of saying, I'm trying to keep my mind clear and my heart open. That's my practice. And then I say, towards that end, I sit every day, I, I sit every day, I do loving-kindness practice, I have a prayer practice, I have a parenting practice, I have a teaching practice, I have a grandparenting practice, I have a relationship practice, I have all those practices, but those are the sub-practices, those are the techniques, those are the technical ways that support my overriding practice of trying to keep my mind clear and my heart open. But I'm deciding I'm going to change my answer now, I'm not going to say I'm trying to keep my mind clear and my heart open because they don't stay that way. I think I'm going to say I am practicing restoring a clear mind and an open heart when I've lost them. I call this recovery practice. And I think that the Metta Sutta is the instruction manual for doing it, and that Metta practice is the vehicle for doing it. And I love all of the Sutta, I do. But really, certain lines appeal to me. 
I really love the first line. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. Guy said it the other day. It's so marvelous to have somebody say with authority, this is what should be done. You look at the world, it's in such a turmoil, it's in such a mess. It's like we need a mommy to come and say, look, you're not doing it right. This is what should be done. I just love the authority and the absolute certainty of it. It doesn't say, you might try this, maybe it'll be a good thing. It says, this is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. I love that. I also think about the fact that it doesn't say, it goes on to say, love everyone no matter what. I think actually that's the central teaching of all religious lineages that have endured. I think it's the same as love your neighbor as yourself, meaning all the neighbors in the world. I think it's the same as love with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Just love, I think, is what it says. And for a while, I thought, it really doesn't say, however, how. It just says, just do it. But I actually think it says how. It says how in um, a subtle way. And the subtle way is what is now my favorite line in the whole sutta currently. I change from time to time. But it's currently my favorite line because I think it's the clue for how And it's also the reassurance that it can be done. And it's a a line that Guy said this morning, wishing in gladness and in safety. I think that's such a crucial line, wishing in gladness and in safety. There's a a preamble to that about leading a, a life that's careful, meticulous, moral, thoughtful, There is no time for not moving slow, is I think what the first paragraph says. But then there's a line, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be happy, whatever their living nature. And I think that that line, wishing in gladness and safety, is such a key line. Because when we are safe, we are glad to bless. Our hearts naturally incline to gratitude and benevolence. And the well-wishing that comes out of that strengthens the gladness, which then strengthens the safety. And this form of practice, what we've been doing, both the form and the content, the way in which we've been practicing, and what we've been saying, how we've been aiming our hearts, the intention, both promote gladness and safety. They hold the heart up when we are held up when we haven't had heart failure, we're able to love. Our whole heart is available to love. I think of them as being, this practice, as being various ways, uh, permutations of the Buddha's teaching of the five spiritual faculties, five spiritual powers, five ways that the heart gets held up that we get um, protected from heart failure, keep the heart glad and safe. We make the resolves over and over. We incline the heart over and over. May you be, may I be, may all beings be. The repetition itself of the resolves, the repetition of returning to the resolves, 
builds concentration. And the concentration, as we've been saying for several nights, is the natural antidote for all of the troublesome hindrance energies. It really is wonderful to know specific antidotes for specific torments of the mind. But the overarching antidote is a concentrated mind. And as we do this practice all week, we're continually attending to what's going on. How am I saying this? How am I doing this? How do I feel? What's happening? What am I saying? Even in the saying of different phrases, the mind has to stay alert and bright and pay attention to the saying of the phrase, to the aiming of the phrase, to what feeling comes up when you say the phrase. I think what happens in us as we do that, what happens in me, is the acuity of my perception, my sensitivity to the moment, and my acuity of of perception, my ability to see more clearly what's happening, develops as I do it. It's another way of saying that mindfulness develops as I am practicing concentration. It's really a wonderful understanding to know that continued moments of mindfulness really deepen concentration. And attending to the movements of the mind and heart as we try to develop the concentration really wakes up the mindfulness. They come back and forth. They both hold each other up. And I discover, and you probably have discovered, that you're getting up earlier every morning, maybe going to sleep later every night, Less sleepiness reported. Nobody today that I saw said I'm sleepy all the time. I discovered that as my mind becomes concentrated and the the hindrances are uh, lessened or they disappear, and as my mind gets a little sharper, as my mindfulness gets good, that my attention is not scattered all over the place. I'm not distracted. If I'm not distracted, my energy level goes up. It's not squandered by being all over the place. So my energy level goes up. I think of this as a wisdom practice, as a practice that develops wisdom. As I watch myself in uh, practice situations, becoming more tolerant. Remember the other night I said people by and by as the days go by, they look prettier, they look nicer, you get more forgiving in your heart. It's such a pleasure when my heart is forgiving. I'm so happy to see that it does that. I really get to understand that as long as I have a view, as long as I make right and wrong and other, that I'll suffer. And in fact, when I'm not able to be tolerant and I see that my mind is caught in a view and the view is causing me pain, to the degree that I can be more compassionate for myself, I really learn that everything rests on compassion that I will be free if I give up my views, that's a kindness to myself, that when I can't, I could be kind about that. That I could think about if um, if this were a game, that the answer to the question, or if this were a quiz show, that the fallback answer to every question would be compassion for other people, for ourselves always as the way to untie the knot of the mind. Compassion for me, compassion for them, compassion for everything. The wisdom would be to see how that works. 
really to understand the clearly the, the, what the Buddha said, this is what I came to teach, suffering in the end of suffering. And to see the moments in which my heart is alive and suffering is not happening, really to understand clearly that there is an end to suffering. And really I think the faith, which is the fifth of the five spiritual powers, my faith really deepens. Not only when I get it, but when I, when, I, when I hear it and it sounds right, but when I live it and it feels right. In, this, in those times when I am asleep but my heart is awake, those are the incomparable times. Not just for me, for you as well. I think a lot about faith being... Um, faith, my, my faith is not so... Is for me different from the word belief. Um, people say, do you believe? And sometimes people say, do you really believe? And sometimes people say, you don't really believe that. You know, Belief is a funny word. And so it's one that I try not to use so much because I find it, it's much more helpful for me and for anybody else to come around another way and say, what I completely trust is, what I completely trust is that the end of suffering is possible, that it reflects in a completely benevolent heart, that the refuge of the benevolent heart is available for all of us. It's the gift of having been born in human form. And that really sharing it with other people, sharing it with other beings, is the point on behalf of the other beings and on behalf of ourselves. Tomorrow we will share the merit. But we have been, and we always are. This is from the Vinaya Pitaka. Vinaya is monk's rules. It's a piece having to do with instructions from the Buddha on monks that he sent out to spread what he had taught about suffering and the end of suffering. Then the Buddha said to his monks, walk over the earth for the blessing of many, for the happiness of many, out of compassion for the world, for the welfare and the blessing and the happiness of gods and men. So we'll just sit for a minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on January 10, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.